The Holy Spirit is greater than man's idea. The Holy Ghost is greater than our own preconceived ideas. Know that. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the Internet's best kept secret. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You might notice today that I sound a little bit tired, and that is because um, Katie and I have been sleep training our infant son. And if you're a parent, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are not a parent, just imagine (laughs) setting an alarm clock to go off at random intervals all night long Put it next to your ear, and uh, that might give you something of an idea of what the last week has looked like for me in the sleep department. So I apologize if I'm lacking that particular energetic sparkle or that um, intellectual vigor that I usually try to maintain. But despite all that, I feel so much Jesus, you guys. Like I realize that this is a oh, this is a crazy and tough and interesting and confusing time to be alive for so many people. And uh, I'm certainly not immune to that, but I can just tell you that the Bible is not lying when it says there is peace that is available beyond all understanding, that we don't have to lean on our own understanding, that we can be energized by the very energy of Christ living within us, that when we fix our eyes on Him, we go from glory to glory. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And uh, I don't know, I just felt like somebody needed to hear that today. I... I <laughs> Before I even dive into what I'm going to talk about, I just feel like somebody out there needs to hear, hey, you you can actually live from a victorious place, even in the midst of all that's going on. And uh, I just pray that whoever I'm talking to right now, that you, as you're hearing this, you just discover uh, that that glorious inner presence of Christ within you, refreshing you, whew, keeping you, sustaining you. And that all the swirl and all the confusion and all the static and interference coming across the signal would just cease and you would hear his voice ringing loud and clear, his delight over you, (laughs) his singing over you. The Father is singing your song right now. Lord, have mercy. I have so much to talk about today, and this is all just like coming to me, so I know I love I love it when the Holy Spirit does this, but I, I, I let me just throw this in really quick before we even jump in. I, I read an article a while back that in each and every one of our strands of DNA is a hyper-specific, unbelievably specific code. And those unique genetic codes are actually found in all uh, living creatures. And so there was a scientist a while back who broke it all down into a form where he could transfer it into musical notes. And then he took uh, different DNA songs from different animals, hired a composer, and had them write music to these DNA melodies. 
And when you hear them, like there's one where he does a swan. There's there's one where he does like a whale. And when you hear these, it's just it's amazing to think that on some level there's there's a song that's going out throughout all of creation, and uh, we're all kind of humming along. Uh, they say that at the at the very bedrock of existence itself, atoms and quarks and all of that are simply just vibrating masses of energy. It's a, it's essentially it's just this vibrating energy. And wouldn't you know it, it says that the Father is singing over you at all times. But it also says that Jesus, by his word, upholds and sustains all things. And so my thought, my theory is, is that as you tune in and as you begin to listen and hear the Father's voice singing over you, every part of you that's in disharmony and disarray, uh, in disorder, begins to realign and recalibrate. And that's why you feel so refreshed in His presence. And so right now, I just invite you, I just speak over you a prayer that as you go throughout your week, as you're praying, you would you would hear and feel the song of heaven rippling through your being, recalibrating who you are, and shaking off the dust of confusion and everything else that's coming against us right now. (laughs) Man, I'm not even sure where to go from here. I sat down to record something very specific, and then I, I went and got hit by the Holy Ghost. Ugh. (laughs) well hey with all of that going on um i'd love to i'm feeling oh man i'm feeling swirly swirly do you ever just feel the swirl of the holy spirit like for me when when i feel the presence of god the walls literally start moving it's like somebody put me on a merry-go-round and swished it around a hundred thousand times and I'm trying to walk. It's like, oh, I feel a movement in the spirit. Sometimes it's hard to talk <laughs> when you feel that. Oh my goodness. Well, hi there. If you are, uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Thanks so much. It's good to have you. Um, but I want to just say up front that you happen to be listening to the f- to the fourth part of a fifth part of a long time on again, off again series I started doing last summer about the power of the cross. And while it's not 100% necessary uh, that you listen to all the other episodes before you hear this, I would say it's definitely recommended. Because one of my goals on this show is to take you deeper than the average Sunday sermon at Mick Church. And so while there's lots of things in the Bible that can be broken down in an hour, other things take a lot more context and foundation building to talk about. And so I better just get this out of the way right now. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing things like physical resurrection of dead bodies, anti-aging, indestructibility, the possibilities of experiencing immortality, as in like you just don't 
actually die and some other things that are going to sound really super out there if you haven't heard my spiel or my setup about the new creation reality. And so like I said, you don't have to go back, but it is recommended that you at least start with part A of this little mini-series. It's called Into the Garden. Otherwise, proceed at your own risk. But otherwise, uh, for the rest of you, let me just give a quick recap. In part A, I talked about how in the Garden of Eden, we get a picture of what God was always dreaming of for the human race. But as we all know, through Adam and Eve, creation fell into a cursed state and God's dream was seemingly lost. But thankfully, the father already saw that coming a mile away and made arrangements to send his son, Jesus, to be the new Adam. And so by going to the cross, he broke the curse of sin, undid all of the evils of the first Adam. And when he raised to life, he initiated a whole new creation, a whole new dimension or reality. Some people call it the kingdom of God. Some people call it the new creation. And right now, for our purposes today, we are calling it the garden or the new Eden. And so Jesus Christ restored humanity back to the garden. And now we are seeing the effects of that event ripple across time and space in human history. So in parts B and C, I explained about how if we want to participate in seeing this new creation realized, it does wonders for us to go back and look at exactly how this curse of sin functioned and what it means for us to say that it's been destroyed. I feel like sometimes, especially when it comes to the gospel, we're so used to hearing cliches and abstractions that we don't ever really go back and look at the real components behind the basics. So that's what we've been aiming to do in this sort of long-form unfolding discussion about the new creation. And so in parts B and C, I explained that there are at least three main components to the fall. Um, there's selfishness, which is disorder in relationships. Uh, there's greed and poverty. They're kind of one and the same. And this is a disorder in our relationship with materiality and and stewardship and money. Um, but this week, we're going to be focusing on death and corruption. And so a final note before we actually dive in. But it's really interesting to note that if you look at all of human history through this lens, you can trace all of the dysfunction, war, sickness, poverty, corruption, and everything else back to these three components. And this is why in Deuteronomy, Moses gave a specific law that the future kings of Israel were to not have multiple wives, which goes back to that disorder in relationships, that they weren't to build vast armies, um, because wielding violence and military might is cooperation with death. And lastly, that they weren't to hold, they, they were not to hoard treasures, which would be improper stewardship or partnership with greed. And so could you imagine for just a moment, a world where those in power actually followed those laws? Well, thankfully, that world is very real and it's called the kingdom of God. But before we get into that good news, let's talk about everyone's favorite Thanksgiving dinner table topic, the crushing reality of death and the slow inevitable collapse of the universe. 
Now that might sound a little heavy to some of you, but you're in good hands. This is, after all, the house of bliss, not the house of depression. Just think of this part as the heavy before the revy. The poet Dylan Thomas once wrote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now, I'll admit that uh, I was first made aware of this poem through the movie Interstellar. Which, on a side note, if you haven't seen Interstellar, fix your life. Interstellar by Christopher Nolan is by far my all-time favorite movie. And it opens up with this poem. And I love the desperate feeling of fighting against the inevitable that this poem conveys. Which I think is something quite common to, to humanity. Like, have you ever asked yourself this? What is it about death that is so terrifying? so wrong? Why do we fear aging? Why do people spend millions of dollars a year getting their faces pumped with Botox? And why does it seem like every James Bond villain in the movies always is inventing some kind of immortality machine? Why do we weep bitterly when our relatives die, even, when, even if they've lived a long, full life? And while some religions will teach that life and death are in a delicate, necessary balance... I've always felt this really strange nagging that there's something about death that just doesn't add up. It's just so wrong. This has been a question that's eaten at me for a long time. If death is so normal, why does it feel so abnormal? C.S. Lewis famously said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I think that quote can apply to this concept of immortality. Because you see, death might be typical, but from God's perspective, death is absolutely not normal. And yet, death seems to permeate every inch of the known universe. Allow me to read some sciencey, nerdy stuff to you, but I love this stuff because I, I find it fascinating when the world's most brilliant scientific minds finally getting around to saying what Jewish mystics were saying thousands of years ago. So this is from a physics article I found online. Uh, it says, The second law of thermodynamics states that the universe is constantly and permanently increasing in its level of disorder. You might have heard the phrase heat death. And this is a scenario where all things eventually become the same temperature, which would be the ultimate level of disorder. Because if everything is at the same temperature, no work can be done, and all energy will end up as the random motion of atoms and molecules. Essentially, although our daily lives go on cheerfully, scientists have long said that everything in the universe seems to be slowly dying and collapsing into chaos. Here's a quote from Space.com about this idea of heat death. You may not realize it by looking at the night sky, but the ultimate darkness is already setting in. Stars first appeared on the cosmic stage rather early, more than 13 billion years ago, just a few hundred million years into this great play. But there's only so much stuff in the universe, and only so many opportunity to make balls of it dense enough to ignite nuclear fusion, creating the stars that fight against the relentless night. 
The expansion of the universe dilutes everything in it, meaning there are fewer and fewer chances to make nuclear magic happen. And around 10 billion years ago, the expansion reached a tipping point. The matter in the cosmos was spread too thin, and the engines of creation shut off. The curtain was called, and the epoch of peak star formation has already passed, and we are currently living in the wind-down stage. So this article uh, goes into more detail about how all is lost, and then I love it because it ends with, have a nice day. <laughs> now I realize that this probably comes off as very heavy and depressing, but like I said, stay with me because this train is going somewhere. But you might be interested to know that the Bible has quite a few parallel ideas to this concept. And while the biblical writers didn't necessarily know what scientists know now, they still observed very poignantly how everything is affected by this decay. Here's a happy little passage from Ecclesiastes. It says, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As no one uh, I'm sorry, as one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. You know, funny enough, I've never seen that uh, hung up on anyone's refrigerator. <laughs> I'm almost certain that was written during uh, King Saul's underreported emo phase. You know, maybe he was just listening to a little too much of The Cure and decided to uh, write the Bible. <laughs> what I'm getting at is this idea that everything is slowly falling apart and that no matter happy life is, there always seems to be this gravitational pull towards death is actually not only present in the New Testament, but is fleshed out even more. The biblical word that Paul uses is corruption. Corruption is the idea that because because all of creation is under this curse of sin, it is slowly collapsing into nothing or non-being. Uh, and this is how N.T. Wright loosely defines hell, as the idea that people who choose life apart from the source of life and being have no life at all. Um, and over the years and years, they lose their own being, collapsing into an inhuman kind of non-being. Or you might have heard it put like this, for the wages of sin is death. But sin isn't just a legal issue, it's an organic one, like a disease that goes deep into the soul. But if you recall, sin doesn't just affect human beings. Because of our God-given authority, because of our role in the earth as administrators of the invisible realm, when Adam fell under the power of death, all of creation fell with him. I've brought this up a few times, but let's revisit this passage in Romans real quick. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, expanding on that idea, um, one of my favorite church fathers, St. Athanasius, wrote this. Because death and corruption were gaining even firmer hold on them, the human race was in a process of destruction. Man, who was created in God's image and in his possession of reason, reflected the very word himself, 
was disappearing and the work of God was being undone. The law of death, which followed from the transgression, prevailed upon us, and from it there was no escape. So before we dive into the good news, I think there's something extremely important to understand from the outset, and that is that death is the enemy of God. God did not author death. God is not roommates with death. Death is the result of sin. Corruption and decay are completely foreign to the mind of God and to the design of his people and his creation. And so no matter what crystal snorting yoga matcha Instagram new age yoga instructor says, death is not the counterbalance of life. That might be a popular cultural belief, but it is thoroughly unbiblical. Okay, so here's more from Athanasius about this. He says, The thing that was happening was in truth both monstrous and unfitting. It would have, of course, been unthinkable that God should go back on his word and that man, having transgressed, should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which had once shared in the nature of the word should perish and turn back again to non-existence through corruption. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God and mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. Now, Athanasius basically goes on to say, like, death and corruption are a total disaster, and it would be completely unfitting of our good God to let his good creation that bears his image just slowly fall back into nothingness. Be, be, whether it was their fault or not, he's saying, whether, whether it was because of evil spirits and the devil or whether it was because of our own stupidity, it doesn't matter. God is too good to let that happen. It, it, it's, not, it's just not in his nature. So he had to step in. When we look at the early church, when we look at the scriptures, like, we get this attitude and this sentiment that death is not a friend. I think this is something that we really need to get our heads around. Death is not a friend. It should not be cooperated with. It should not be tolerated. We've gotten so used to it that we say things like, oh, well, it, it was so-and-so's time to go. Or, oh, well, so-and-so had to die so that Billy Bob could come to know Jesus. And there's even like popular, like really popular teachers out there who have entire conferences around teaching people how, how to prepare themselves to die. And so what the church does constantly is take things like immortality, bliss, healing, the kingdom of God, heaven, angels, the presence of God, whatever. And we sweep that stuff under this rug called going to heaven someday. And we say that you can't experience it until you die. Okay, but what this does, um, like I was talking to my friend Tyler Johnson about last week, is it causes this subconscious belief to say that death is the real door to heaven. So Ben Dunn always used to say, if you have to die to be free from sin, then death is your savior, not Jesus Christ. And that quote rings true to me. The Bible says so often that death is the enemy of God. And we could probably spend, you know, many episodes working on the arguments against that, but let's just make this as simple as possible. 
It says in the Bible that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came so that we would have life and life abundant. So if it looks like death, it's the devil. If it looks like abundant life, it is of God. Devil, bad. Jesus, good. So let's not take our experiences or, or our lack of experiences rather and overcomplicate and muddy up this super elementary basic truth. Jesus Christ came to abolish death. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and died to break the legal claim that death had over us. Now, why would Jesus go through all that blood and sweat and tears and, and torture just so we could cozy back up to death and make it part of our lives again? No, Jesus never said, go therefore and, and give really eloquent funerals or, or go therefore and make, pe make sure people know they're, where they're going when they die. No, he said, raise the dead, destroy the works of the devil. And honestly, truly, this, this partnership, this friendship, this worship of death, I believe is one of the reasons why seeing the dead race is not more common than it is. See, it reminds me a lot of my journey with supernatural healing, seeing miracles. And one of the first things that happens when you start walking in that stuff is you begin to see that sickness is not of God. It is, it is an enemy of the people of God. And so as long as somebody is in front of you and they're sick or they're diseased and you're sitting there wondering to yourself, I wonder if it's God's will to heal this person. Um, it affects the way that you pray. It affects the way that you look at things. But when you've had this revelation go off like a bomb in your spirit that Jesus went about, as it says in Acts 10, healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil, that sickness is the work of the devil, and we are to destroy the works of the devil, uh, then you just stop asking those questions and you start releasing healing indiscriminately. I think that when we ask, oh, was it so-and-so's time? Or, oh, you know, were, were these circumstances brought about by God? I think we're doing the exact same thing. We are shooting ourselves in the foot. And instead of just taking simply with faith like a child what Jesus told us to do to raise the dead, we begin adding these layers of human reason to it. And so my goal on this podcast today is, uh, you know, I... I don't really have time to do a completely exhaustive thing. That's what my book will be for. But I'm hoping that in the next half hour or so, I can build a case for you to see that life and life abundant truly is the agenda of Jesus. So let's take another short break. And when we return, we're going to dive in to the spirit of life. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in today. I just want to give a big shout out to my latest patron, Max. And I also want to give a shout out to my patrons, Claire and Shelly, uh, because they actually doubled their pledges this month. That is so amazing and generous. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Because of you, I get to do this. Now, if you've never podcasted before, let me just tell you, it takes a tremendous amount of work and time and focus and writing and research and energy and resources and... Yeah, it is because of my generous patience that I actually get to do what I do. And so if you enjoy this show um, or you just really want to partner with what God is doing through me, 
it's super easy to do it all you've got to do is uh, hit the link in the show notes go to patreon find me find my show and any amount whether it's a dollar a month or 50 trillion dollars all of it will give you all the same access to all the bonus goodies that i post each and every month and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Well, welcome back, everybody. I want to uh, I want to open with a statement. Scientists are pretty smart people. With each passing year, it seems as if modern science has learned just about everything there is to know about the human body. For instance, they know that you have approximately eighty-six billion neurons firing and making connections in your brain right now. Uh. They know how to clone three-headed sheep. They know how to grow vegetables in a tube. And as recently as 2013, bionic eye replacements have been successfully tested, meaning like they can take a robot eye and stick it in a blind person's eye spot and they're able to see to some degree. That's amazing. Science can do so many things to extend and expand and improve life but it cannot create it. God alone is the giver of life. And this is where things start to get really fun. Do you remember what I said earlier about Adam representing the whole of creation with his actions? Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. It says the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So before the fall, Adam and Eve were recipients of the spirit of life. They could go and eat from the tree of life freely. But when they fell, they severed that connection with the source of life, which is why they started dying off. Uh, Recently, my friend Matt Spinks on his show, uh, Firehouse Projects Podcast, had John Crowder, one of my favorite speakers on his show, and they were talking about this idea of immortality. And John has this theory that the reason why people live so long in the Old Testament was because it took a few generations for the full ramifications of death to set in, which I think makes a lot of sense. But anyway, because of our original parents, we all fell into the clutches of death. So when Jesus came in a human body, he untangled the fate of humanity from the first Adam and bound the entire created order into himself instead. And this is why he is called the last Adam. By taking on a flesh and blood body, God forever wove humanity into the fabric of his own divine life forevermore. So now, instead of the source of life being on the outside of us coming in, the very spirit of life itself lives within mankind. We no longer simply receive life, but we get to dispense it. And this is how the dead are raised. Not by our own intrinsic power. I'm pretty sure there's not even enough heat in the human body to cook a potato, but but it is by the indwelling spirit of God flowing out from us into the world around us. 
oh, there's this awesome verse in 2 Timothy that says, What was hidden has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But did you catch that? He didn't say eternal life here. He said immortality. Did you know that eternal life and immortality are not the same thing? You might think of them as one and the same, but there's actually a reason why there are two distinct words in the Bible. Now, you and I have often been taught that verses like John 3.16 are pointing to this idea that we're going to live forever. Now, that concept is true, but that's not actually what Jesus is saying in John 3.16, because we tend to conflate the word eternal with everlasting. In fact, some translations put it that way. But actually, eternal does not mean the same thing as everlasting. The word where they get eternal in Hebrew is the word olam. And the Greek equivalent of that word is ion, where we get the word eon. Okay, so these words are speaking of not, a, not of a, a, a space of time, but of an age or of a world. And so eternal life is not actually never ending life but rather a life that is of another world, a life that is of the age to come. It's like an eternal quality of life, an eternal type of life, not necessarily an eternal quantity of life. And Jesus himself actually defined it for us. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know the Father. So eternal life is this rich, full, kind of sweet beautiful life that can only come about by knowing the Father personally and intimately. But there are also verses that promise us specifically and explicitly that we will be immortal. See, the Bible says that God alone holds immortality. And the amazing thing is that he has placed himself within us and raised us up and placed us in himself. And so now, we, you and I, are actually his physical temple. The Bible says if anyone is joined to Christ, he is one spirit with him. How could you die if you are one spirit with God? You say, well, that's, that's a spiritual reality. Yeah, but the Bible also says that we are his body. We are his physical body. We are his hands and feet representatives in the earth. So how could God let his own body die? This is a question that thrills me, but it's what happens when you have life itself radiating out of your innermost being? Romans says this, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies. Catch that mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. But it's easy to hear that and just think of it as empty theology or, or abstract or, again, like, yeah, well, that'll, you know, that'll be something we experience one day. But really, think about this sometime. What happens when God himself makes the human body his temple? What happens when the manifest presence of God touches human flesh? And all we really have to do is turn to the Old Testament to see some really 
powerful, eye-opening examples. Like, for instance, do you remember how when the Israelites were walking through Egypt, it says God preserved their clothing from becoming worn? By being in the presence of God, they were accessing a state of being where decay no longer applied to them. Or what about the super hilarious story of Obed-Edom, who I'm going to call Obi from now on. But Obi was the guy who ended up with the Ark of the Covenant in his backyard because King David was too scared to go near it. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the Ark of the Covenant was basically one and the same as the presence of God. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place. You know, there's all these stories and legends of people dying if they went in there. Like you got that story of the two priests who were burned alive by fire from the presence of God because they burned the wrong incense. So poor Obi, (laughs) he gets that thing dumped into his backyard, effectively turning his house into the Holy of Holies. But instead of dying, the Bible says that the Lord blessed him and his household and everything that he had. And so according to the Jewish tradition, um, it says Obi had six daughters who each gave birth to two children during that three-month period that it was at his house. So apparently the presence of God is pretty good for marriages. Can I get an amen, fellas? Amen! But this just shows us that the the result of being near God is life, life, and more life. The Psalms say that those who worship God every morning will still bear fruit in old age, and they will be fresh and green. Hey, forget the Botox. You have an injection of the regenerative power of God in your face. <laughs> Now, all of that might sound really amazing, but remember that Obi was in the Old Covenant. Obi illustrates what happens when you touch the living God, but having the living God be inside of you permanently is a whole different level. I believe that we as a church are moving into a time where death will stop being the normal and it will actually become a choice. I mean, is it really so far-fetched to believe that we don't have to die? The Bible says that Enoch was a man who walked with God, and, and Enoch lived thousands of years before Jesus ushered in the new covenant, and yet he never tasted death. The Bible says he was simply transported into heaven. Or, the, or take Elijah, who the book of James says was a man just like us, and it says he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. Now remember, this is the old covenant pre-cross, and scripture says that we live in a new and better covenant now. So how much more can we expect this sort of thing in Christ? In fact, I mean, this will really blow your mind if you've never heard this before, but there have been saints all throughout history who have walked in this reality. Um, You know, there's reports of saints like the Desert Fathers, like St. Anthony, who lived supernaturally long lives. Like we're talking hundreds of years. And not only that, but there are dozens of saints today, like right now, whose dead bodies are on display for the world to see that they haven't even decomposed. They say that some of these bodies even give off a sweet floral smell instead of the stench of death. If you don't believe me, just for fun, go ahead and Google this. St. Bernadette, Google Santa Rosa, Catherine of Labore, 
and um, St. Catherine of Bologna. Some of them have been uh, in their coffins for centuries, and they look as if they just died yesterday. Now, some of you might have heard of that uh, Indian missionary, Sadhu Sundar Singh. That guy was a crazy mystic, and it, it was said of him that he spent more time in ecstatic visions than uh, present awake on the earth. And one day, he went into the hills to pray, and he never returned. Now, you know, this could just be tall tales or whatever, but there are still believers who are reporting seeing this guy even now. And this was like over a hundred years ago that he disappeared. So I don't know, is this too far-fetched? Well, maybe, but if you really believe in a God who's as strange and miraculous as ours, is it really that strange? You know, even for me just 10 years ago, that the idea that someone could be supernaturally healed through my prayers seemed bizarre and out there. I mean, I would have balked if you told me that you were seeing supernatural healings. But now I've seen, and I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of people healed. Healing isn't just normal. I mean, I expect it. To me, it's weird when people don't get healed. And the Bible says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And so I believe that as we move into the, and I'm air quoting here, last days, I believe we're going to continue to see at the tail end of history a steady increase in dead raisings. People, people will, they won't age as quickly. I dream of a day when the first instinct of church people isn't just to call the coroner when somebody dies, but instead to look at them like Jesus and say, wake up. Because we know deep in our gut that they're only sleeping. And so after hearing this, a lot of people are going to bring up that verse in Hebrews where it says, it is appointed every man to die once and then the judgment. But think about this. Yes, all of mankind was under the curse of sin and the wages of sin is death. And so every man was legally bound to die. But Jesus, the new Adam, died the very death that every man was supposed to die and brought them into his own resurrection life. Second Corinthians says, if one died for all, therefore all have died. So what happens is when we enter into covenant with Jesus Christ, we step out of the law, out of the old, which brought death and judgment and into the new, which activates life now. So to be clear, um, I do believe that there is still a judgment that will be experienced because that's all over the New Testament. Um, the idea that our deeds will be judged, that our work will be tested with fire. But again, that doesn't necessarily entail a bodily death. So what if instead of dying, uh, we were just simply transfigured like Jesus on the mountain? A while back in like October, um, I did an episode about judgment saying that the same fire of the Holy Ghost that lit up believers on Pentecost is the same fire that's going to come to burn away or transfigure rather the entire earth. So what if bodily death doesn't have to take place for us to step into that revealing, transfiguring flame? I mean, think about it. What about the people who 
are the last generation to live before the return of Jesus? Does the Bible not say that those who are alive when Jesus returns will rise to meet them in the air? What I'm saying is, you know, yes, you do have this verse that says uh, every man will die, but then you also have all these other verses that make it seem like, well, maybe there's exceptions to this rule. And maybe, just maybe, if it's true that in Christ all have already died, well, then I'm starting to wonder if maybe we've placed some wrong emphasis on that verse. Here's what I want to close with. And I need you to stick with me because this is going to be a bit of a mind bender. So strap on your thinking cap because we're going to take just a little light recreational dip into the world of quantum physics. If all of this about immortality is true, if human beings were never meant to die, if Jesus destroyed death once and for all on the cross, if we don't have to actually die to pass into judgment, and if Jesus gave us the power and authority to raise the dead, then why are we still dying? Why does it still seem that death is permeating every inch of the universe? The book of Hebrews says, You have placed all things in subjection under his feet. Um, and in doing that, there is nothing that was not placed under his feet. But now, presently, we do not yet see all things placed under him. So, the truth is that death is already under his feet. It doesn't say he hasn't defeated death. It says that we do not yet see death defeated. The truest truth is that death is in fact defeated. But the key to manifesting this truth is to see. I'm not, I'm not talking about seeing it with your eyes. I'm talking about like when Jesus said you need to have eyes to see. He's talking about a spiritual kind of seeing. And so we humans, we only know how to live one way, and that is within time and space. But time is actually a gift from God, because without it, uh, they say that you would just experience every moment all at once. And so for me as a father, time is a gift because instead of just seeing my daughter's entire life flash before me in an instant, I get to watch her grow and change and graduate and have birthdays and all those things in a series and a flow of events. God, who exists outside of time, sees the timeline of her life from beginning to end. But I experience that same life as a process. And I think this is kind of how the kingdom of God works. It's already here, surrounding us and permeating us at all times. But you and I experience it as a slow transition or transformation from the old into the new. And so the event of the cross is this objective, concrete reality. But our subjective experience of it can fluctuate and change. So what does that mean? Well, I was trying to find a way to explain this, and then it hit me one time when I was at the airport. I was playing with my daughter on one of those, like, conveyor belt moving walkways. And those are a lot of fun because uh, you can just sit there and be carried along by them, or you could choose to walk with them and feel like you're moving at super speed. But I believe the flow of time is very similar. On the cross, Jesus abolished the power of death, and when he ascended, the Father placed death under his feet once and for all. That was a one-time fixed event that already took place. But time reveals this to us as a slowly unfolding reality. 
And so I already mentioned this uh, in another episode, but scientists have discovered this principle called time dilation. They have discovered that the flow of time can actually be changed or altered by forces like gravity. And so on planets that have extremely dense gravity, time actually flows slower. So if gravity can affect time, well, I believe that faith can as well. And this is why some people throughout history have already experienced the immortality of the age to come, because they were able to see what God sees outside of the flow of time, and by faith, they leaned into it. So just like walking on that conveyor belt, their faith and desire pulled things from the future closer to them. But I think the reverse is also true, because on a conveyor belt, you can choose to walk in the opposite direction. Like, we as humanity are very powerful. And I think there's something to the fact that the vast, overwhelming majority of people put absolute, unquestioning faith in the reality of death. In my opinion, I think that might have something to do with why we haven't really seen the full power of the cross manifest. But over time, as God releases the revelation of immortality, more and more people begin to see and believe in the gospel. And so I believe that as we walk towards that, as we see it, as we move towards that, eventually the tide of humanity will turn and death will begin to gradually become abnormal. And so with that, I want to bless you. If you could just put your hand on your eyes for me, that would be awesome. Don't, don't poke your eyes, you know, just place them over your eyes. But I'm praying for you now. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to manifest yourself through the sound of my voice over this podcast, and I bless everyone listening. May they have eyes to see beyond what can be seen with the physical. May their faith see and pull the reality of abundant life into the present. May they experience a deep repentance, a shift in their thinking in the areas of life and death. And may they see it as a thoroughly defeated enemy, one to rage against, one to utterly oppose, not by their own strength, but through the river of resurrection life that flows through their being, even at this moment. And so as you are listening, I just want to repeat this command of Jesus to you. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, because as he is, which is life, which is immortality, which is fullness, which is restoration, as he is, so are you in this world. Love you guys. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind-the-scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted 
and grounded in his everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.